We're in Isaiah 53 today. So let me say, um, we're going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we're going to work our way all the way through Isaiah 53. So there are times when, um, as a pastor, you know, I get to choose what we preach on. And there's always a text within the, the um, book of the Bible that I'm excited about preaching. And uh, this would be one of the ones in Isaiah that I was probably, I think about Isaiah 6, the holy, 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 um, but also Isaiah 53. As a matter of fact, they would call this, or many commentators would call this, this is the Mount Everest of all of the Old Testament. If you are thinking about where in the Old Testament does the Old Testament speak about Jesus or the coming Messiah, it is in this passage of Scripture. It is in Isaiah 53, 52.13, all the way through the conclusion of Isaiah 53. What you'll find in these verses is just the experience of Jesus. And it is awesome. So as I come to this, as I came to this this week, I'm like, okay, I'm excited, right? Like, this is the passage that I've kind of been waiting to get to. This is going to be great, right? And here's what happens. It's as if I have an elephant on my plate and I need to eat the whole elephant. And I don't know, I mean, that's a bad, I mean, we don't eat elephants. But, you know, like, you know, or maybe, maybe it's like I had a, maybe three dozen Ringo's Donuts in front of me. And I'm like, man, i got to eat all of those. And I, I can do it, you know? I can do it. I won't feel good afterwards, but I, I can probably do it. Um, but then I, I think about it, um, this, this passage, and one of the blessings of, of being a pastor is that I get to spend my time um, reading the Word of God, you know, meditating on the Word of God, allowing myself to be steeped within the Word of God. And it's my hope that, um, that we would not see this as a Mount Everest to climb as much as we would enjoy the vista from the top of the mountain as we look over what the Lord has given us today. Um, and it is a, a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. Again, when Isaiah's writing this, he's writing this um, in the future, right? I mean, prophecy, Isaiah's writing this saying, you people of Judah, one day you will be in exile. One day you will be in exile, and I'm writing these things. Now, I think when Isaiah, after he wrote these things, if somebody said, hey, Isaiah, could you explain all that you're writing? I think Isaiah would go, nope. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know how it's going to work itself out. Like, I'm not sure exactly how this suffering servant that I've spoken about three other times, and this is the fourth suffering servant uh, song. We, we, we read about it in Isaiah 42. We read it in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50. But the culmination, the crescendo, the top of the mountain is found in this particular section of Scripture. And as we read these words, every time it says my servant, every time it says, but, but he was, but he was, but he was, I want you to think that this is the person of Jesus, the person and work of our Savior. This is who it is. And, and I really want us not to think about climbing, but again, to enjoy the view of who Jesus is for us. So, having said that, uh, would you please stand if you are able uh, for the reading of God's word, starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So let me tell you where we're going today. In this particular section, what you'll find, uh, even your Bibles are arranged in this. Um, This is uh, poetry. This is prophecy. And what we find is it's broken up into five different parts, divided in three verses apiece. And and if your Bibles are set up that way, they're most likely set up in that, that particular way. Three verses per each section. And what we find to begin with is that we see the servant's suffering sovereignty. Notice what it says in Isaiah 52, 13. And and I tried to put all these in S's today just so that we would know alliteration helps sometimes. The servant's, and all of these begin with servant, the servant's suffering sovereignty. Look at what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, this is the language of Isaiah 6 when we enter into the throne room of God. There is a sense in which we are beginning with the end already, that the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning, that he is high and lifted up, and that he is exalted. This is post-resurrection language is where we find ourselves. And this is Jesus ruling and reigning. And it says, he is, my servant, is wise, and he is high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you. And so people are saying, this high and lifted up Savior, they were astonished to see him because... Look at what happens in 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is talking about the humiliation of Christ. This is talking about the beatings, the whippings, the the crown of thorns. This is talking about the crucifixion. So that when Jesus and, and, and many, you know, stained glass windows and many children's Bibles, you know, they do not depict Jesus where he is marred beyond human resemblance. But it's saying, this is what happened. 
after Jesus died on the cross, he was high and lifted up and exalted. This is not the way that people thought the Messiah was going to come. But it is God's plan and not ours. And it it says this, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, I would love to say that this is an, uh, an allusion to the Presbyterian form of baptism. And I think it is, actually. That there's this sprinkling clean, there's this washing clean through the blood of that which or who which was marred by human semblance. His, his very blood allowed for the cleaning of the nations. And notice what it says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Now why do they shut their mouths? Because they have nothing to say when they see the risen Savior. When they see the pierced hands and feet. And they know that he is high and lifted up and exalted. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, let me, let me say this. Um, again, this is one of the most off-quoted sections of all of Scripture. But let me, let me share a story. Let me share a story of how this particular passage actually uh, led someone to the Lord. Uh, and it's found in Acts chapter 8. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8? Sometimes, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you in the, uh, in the, in the um, shelves underneath. But I want you to see this. I want you to see um, Philip. Um, this is Philip, you know, proclaims. Now, I want you to see who Philip is. You know, Philip, um, a great follower of Christ, um, he is scattered in the midst of, you know, after Saul ravages the church. Saul is about to, you know, come up on his own, become Paul. But in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8, this is Philip, just as background. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with loud voices, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Essentially, Philip is in Samaria, and he's planting churches, seeing converts, and everything's going magnificently well. Like, if I were the Lord God, I'd say, Philip, spend some time there. Appoint elders. Hang out there a little bit. But again, you know, the Lord knows much, much better. And so what happens, if you go down to verse 26 of chapter 8, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, so this is, he says, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And what's beautiful about Philip is rather than saying, but Lord, I've got all this ministry going on. I'm seeing people come to faith. I mean, people are rejoicing in Christ. He goes, I'll obey. I'll go wherever you tell me. So essentially, you know, you know he, he's having this great ministry you know, in the midst of this metropolis in Samaria, and he drops everything, and he goes out to Route 10 in Surrey. Right? Not that it's a desert, but you can see it from there, okay? So he goes out there, and here's what happens. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked. Now, let me just say this. It is a modern um, habit 
that we actually read to ourselves. You know, throughout all of antiquity, people are reading out loud. Okay, so it's, this is not, you know, um, you know, this happens. Like, reading by yourself, that's new. And can you imagine what the airports and the bus terminals would be like if everybody was reading out loud? But um, this, is, this is not, you know, this is just what he's doing. Go and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. You may have heard of this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said, and this is Isaiah, that was Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, the reason I tell you that story, the reason I read that in the New Testament, is do you see how Isaiah 53 you know, it was being used by God. It is being used by God to deliver the gospel message. It is very clear. And, and again, let's go back to Isaiah 53, verse 1 now. Here's it, the, the servant's style. If the, if the first part is the servant's suffering sovereignty, the second part is the servant's style. Who is Jesus and, and what did he look like? You know, how do we tell people about Jesus? Who has believed what he has heard from us? Or, I'm sorry, um, yeah, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the arm of the Lord there, that is the power of God. The arm of the Lord, um, if, if we think about the eye of the Lord being his omniscience, his understanding, his knowledge, the arm of the Lord represents his almighty power above all things. It's one of the attributes that we're teaching the children in Sunday school, that he's almighty. And the arm of the Lord, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because in verse 2, it says this, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now, this is right from Isaiah chapter 11, where it's the root of Jesse. So Jesus sprang up, and he sprang up like no one has ever seen. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus that made us think, wow, he is the leader. He is the Saul among all of his brothers. And so when Jesus comes, he comes with a great deal of humility. humility. Never, and, and one commentator has said, never has one given up so much to become so little as the Lord Jesus Christ did. So he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. There was nothing about him that said, yes, like Jesus was never picked first on the dodgeball team or the soccer team, or the baseball team, because I'm sure they had all those sports back then, right? Um, But in verse 3, look at what it says, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, 
And we esteemed him not. Yeah, there was nothing about Jesus and his physical attributes that would, would warrant us to follow him. As a matter of fact, he was despised and rejected by men. Now, who despised Jesus? Certainly the Jews did. They crucified him. The Romans, they crucified him along with the Jews. What about, well, certainly like Jesus had some friends that stuck by him, right? <laughs> Peter, all he had to do was hear a rooster crow a couple, time, a couple times, and he was out the door rejecting Jesus. The night before saying, if all fall away, I will never fall away from you, Jesus. And in less than a few hours, he was saying, I don't know who he is. Why do you keep asking me why I know him? You know, his friends, I mean, his, his, his family, I mean, so many people rejected Jesus at the cross. And, and sometimes, you know, and, and this is comforting for us, because there are times when, when I know that you feel as if your friends have rejected you, that you feel as if you're misunderstood, misunderstood and rejected, and you feel as if nobody in the world has ever felt as bad as you do. Well, I'm here to tell you, Jesus felt it more. So not only is the style of Jesus, you know, one that is not like, he was not a supermodel, he was not a great sports figure, he was acquainted with grief, he understood suffering, a man of sorrow is acquainted with grief, but in, in this next section, we see the servant as substitute. I mean, this is the passage, if, if I could ask you guys you know, to, to read this passage later on this, this afternoon, and just, um, it would be helpful for you to write it down. You know, to take Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6, um, and just begin to write it down, copy it in a journal, copy it on a blank piece of paper, use a chalkboard. I don't, I don't, I don't care, but it would be good for your souls to immerse yourselves within this section of Scripture. Because this section of Scripture describes the idea of the atonement as a substitute. And he is the servant as substitute. Surely, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, the idea that bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows, that is the idea of expiation that we get in Leviticus, where through the ceremonial law, they take the sins of the people and they place it upon the scapegoat. And then they send it out into the wilderness, essentially removing the sins from the people of God corporately. That's this idea but, but this is who Jesus is. This is who the Messiah is. That he takes all of our grief. So he is born, or like, so imagine that. Imagine everything that you've ever done. And so let's say, for example, every um, rude word, every angry you know, action, everything that you've done, let, let's, let's just ascribe a certain weight to them, right? Let's say that each one of those is one pound, right? You know, like, so let's say they're one pound. So imagine all the ways that you are creating one-pound weights all day long in thought, word, and deed, right? Like you and I would all be rich selling weights in a COVID crisis because we have all of these weights that we have. One pound, one pound, one pound. I get angry at my, my wife. You know, I, I, get, I get frustrated. You know, I don't read my Bible. I'm, I'm prayerless about this. I, you know, I'm, I, you know, all of these things, pound, 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 pound. And what it says is that Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So think about this. Think about all the weights that you would create, I don't know, in one hour. Multiply that by 24. 
and then multiply that by 365, the number of your years, and then multiply that by everybody that would believe in Jesus and put all of that weight upon him. He takes it all. All of it. Every single weight. All of our griefs. It's incredible how strong Jesus is. And in the midst of that, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Because we know that in terms of taking these, these weights upon himself, he took that upon himself at the cross. But there were many who looked at the cross and said, well, he's being punished because he's an evil person. But Isaiah, who's prophesying about something that he didn't understand and what you know, Philip is actually converting the Ethiopian eunuch who would then take the gospel to bear all throughout Africa, at least, at least to Ethiopia and to Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He says this, but, in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. That means that he had holes in his hands and in his feet for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So why did he go to the cross? Why did he, un, you know, why did he, allow the chastisement of the Father. And again, chastisement is such a good word because it's not discipline, but chastisement comes from a Father. That's, the, 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 that's how this word works. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now that word iniquities there, um, the Hebrew word there, actually we, we, can't, we don't have an English equivalent for iniquities. Essentially what it means is that we're, he was crushed for our bentness. You know, but that doesn't sound right, right? So our iniquities basically means that we're bent or that we're twisted. And if we go to straighten that bentness out, we just break, crack. We crack in the middle, right? And so what he's saying there is that because of our iniquities, because of our, our bentness, this is why this is why he was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So what we're saying there is we see this, that through the chastisement and the wounds and the piercing and the crushing of Jesus, we are brought to peace with God the Father and our sins are healed. Now the healing there is broader than just sickness. It's also spiritual. We see that throughout the Old Testament, that healing is spiritual as well as physical. So that we are healed and the healing is the idea of forgiveness. The healing is that our Broken relationship with the Father. Our bentness, if you will, is now straightened because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of this idea of substitute. Now again, verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm going to implore you, go home and journal it. Write it down. Because in verse 6, I love it. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own Way, And the Lord and Yahweh has laid on him, upon Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now we understand that uh, in the sense that there's shepherd analogies throughout the, the Bible. You know, in John 10, we hear about the good shepherd um, and that, that essentially we are sheep. But in this particular passage, and again, I think John is using this passage to, to further explain the gospel. But, but it says... We, like sheep, have gone astray. And you know, sheep wander, right? I mean, sheep basically will follow wherever the green grass is, right? Wherever the green grass is. 
the difficulty with sheep language today is that I don't know about you guys. Actually, I do know. None of you guys own sheep. Like, we're not following sheep, right? Like, so we don't know sheep really well. In the ancient world, there were a lot of shepherds, right? There were a lot of shepherds and a lot, a lot of people grew up around sheep. We don't know sheep very well. Now, well, you know what we do have? We do have pets. You know, many of us have pets and, and many of us have, you know, dogs, right? Probably one of, the, one of the greatest sources of delight that the Lord God has given us, right? You know, and so he gives us a pet, so we have a dog, right? But you know what dogs do? You know, if, if, if sheep go astray because they wander after grass, I could say the same thing about dogs being led astray by squirrels, right? Squirrels are from the devil. And it's a dog's job to eradicate all the squirrels in his, what he owns, his property, right? And so, you know, dogs will endure, you know, the shock of the electric fence to actually pursue a squirrel sometimes to protect us from the evil of squirrelness, right? And the problem is, is that once the dogs get out, I mean, sometimes you have a hard time getting them back. And essentially what we're saying there is that each of us has gone our own way. Each of us has a squirrel that we are pursuing, thinking that I just, my life will be fulfilled if I can only get the squirrel. And some of you, and maybe it's not a squirrel, it might be a mole or a vole or something like that, what, what does your dog or even your cat do when they get a vole or a squirrel or a rabbit or something and they've conquered the squirrel? They bring it back to you. And they say, look what I did. You know? Now, in the midst of this, what, we're, what I'm trying to say is you know, that, that we are like foolish dogs pursuing squirrels that we think will give our life ultimate happiness. But the reality is um, the Lord has something better for us. All we, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, now that is saying that, that within the human heart, there is a propensity to selfishness, to wanting to do what you want to do. Now, let me make a plea. If you want to see examples of, of sinfulness, all you have to do is teach um, children's Sunday school. None of those kids are here. It's okay. You know, but I'm going to tell you this because it's great. So every week for the last semester, Pete and I have been teaching them about the attributes of God. And here's what I love. I say, okay, guys, it's time to go outside. And I would love to think that they go, oh, well, let's go outside. No, they run to the door. And what do they say? I want to be the line leader. And then, so they get up, I mean, right to the door. And what happens is as soon as someone says, I want to be the line leader, and I mean, there's no distance here. The, the next child comes up and squeezes in and says, no, no, I'm the line leader today. As they're then using box out skills that Charles Barkley would be proud of, okay? As they're trying to keep them from going outside. Now, while they are boxing out the child who first said they're line leader, the third child says, oh, no. I'm the line leader. And they come in, and eventually this all ends with Pete becoming the line leader. <laughs> because they're not capable of figuring it out, right? And so there's this, this iniquity, there's this bentness, there's this transgression, and essentially here's what it is. It is this me-first attitude, right? Now, within every child, there is a me-first attitude. And let me just tell you, 
that within every person in this room, there is a me first attitude. It is all about me. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't want anybody to get in my way. That's what this passage is describing, your own way. Like, have you ever been in the car and, and your, your wife says, hey, let's go to this, you know, you have a destination, let's go this way, and immediately you go, that's the wrong way. You know, the right way is to go this way. You know, over there, I'm preaching to James and Alice right there, okay? You know, you know so it's, it's me first, it's my way, right? I want to go this way, because I know the right way, right? Because it's, there, there's this, this is yearning, there's this yearning to be, you know, our own way. That is really what sin is. That's the idea of transgression, iniquities. But in verse 6 it says, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh, the Lord, has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. You see, what Scripture describes is that when we become me first, um, we are not reconciled with God the Father because of this me-first attitude. As a matter of fact, in Romans 5, we're described as the enemies of God. But it's through believing and trusting in Jesus where we are reconciled. You see, Jesus actually satisfies the law twice. He not only obeys the law, but he then pays the penalty. For example, um, if Jesus were alive today, Jesus would never speed. Right? Like, how, how do you obey the speed limit, right? How do, you, how do you obey the law of the speed limit, right? There's two ways. You either go the speed limit or you pay the ticket. That's how you do it. Two ways. Jesus did both of those. He obeyed the speed limit and then he paid the fine that you and I deserve because we drive way too fast. Because it's all about me first, me first, me first. Now, if we think about this idea of substitute, the idea of substitute is at the heart of the gospel. As a matter of fact, it's actually at the heart of any good story you've ever read. The idea of substitute. You know, whether you're watching, and I heard two, two uh, movies or, or books um, some of you, this is an old one, The Last of the Mohicans. You know, there, there's there's, a, there's a, a scene there where there's actually, um, uh, one actually uh, is substituted in. You know, this guy Duncan, you know, um, substitutes. Now, now, let me go even older than that. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. A Tale of Two Cities is about someone who actually died for somebody else in his place. And there's a sense in which, and there's a scene at, at the end of The Tale of Two Cities where uh, a woman, as they're being led to the guillotine, says, oh, I recognize you. And then she goes, no, no, you're not the person that I thought you were. You're going to substitute yourself for another? And he says, yes. And she actually grabs his hand and says, then you're somebody I want to be with as I face eternity. There's something about the substitute. There's something about dying for someone else. There's something about that that is actually the, the premise of every great story, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, some of you guys have heard of the movie Braveheart. 
You know, I mean, like there's something about substituting. There's something about dying for a cause. But there's there's even better with Jesus. You see, Jesus is actually the the paradigm for the, the death and the substitutionary atonement. You know, we, we call our view of the atonement a penal substitutionary atonement, a penalty that atones for sin. So let me just keep going. Notice that the servant is silent and submissive to the father. And in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I don't know about you, but if I was falsely you know, accused of something, I did not do it, I lived a perfect life, and I had a bunch of wicked men taking me to some place that I was going to die, I would have a few things to say to them. Like, I would have a lot to say to them, but Jesus didn't. But like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus knew it was the will of the Father that he might die so that we might be reconciled. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You know, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. So you got, you know, he's, he's crucified between two thieves and with a rich man in his death. And you're like, well, who's the rich man? Well, that's Joseph of Arimathea who actually took his body and laid him in his tomb. You're like, how does all of this work itself out? Isaiah 53, I mean, again, Isaiah 53 is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament looking out and seeing Jesus fulfilling all of these prophecies for all of us. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Notice Jesus' obedience to the Father in silent submission to the Father. And then lastly, as we you know, think about this, we think about this idea that the servant's success for all. Because in, in verse chapter 53, verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know, the question becomes, who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it 30 pieces of silver to Judas? No. It was the Lord. And the ultimate act of love and, and, and the, the, the love and the holiness of God, dancing together, we see the Lord crushing His Son for us. It was the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. I mean, think about that. Think about Jesus dying so that you might live. Jesus dying so that we might be reconciled to the Father. Jesus dying so that we might live forever with him. You know, it's, it's, um, it's astounding when you think of who Jesus is. Um, the will of the Lord um, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, now look at this, by his knowledge, I'm in verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, there's this idea of bearing the iniquities, but that they will be accounted as righteous. Now, we declare that to be declared righteous in the New Testament is said to be justified. That our justification, it is the language of the law court, that through this sacrifice and substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that we are declared righteous. You can see that the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, they're all using Isaiah 53 to develop 
their ideas and their theology. That this declaration of righteousness and many to be accounted righteous, that's the success of the servant. And in verse 12 it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And then lastly he says this, but not only, now think about this, this is the thing that just boggles my mind. Not only has Jesus obeyed for me, not only has Jesus gone to the cross for me, not only has he borne all of my iniquities, all of my bentness, not only has he reconciled me to the Father, not only has he allowed me to be adopted into the family of God, where I am now loved and forgiven and known, not only where he has you know, bestowed and, and blessed me with the Holy Spirit, but then at the very end of Isaiah 53, it says, he is living to make intercession for us. This is the language of Hebrews in the New Testament, that he makes intercessions for the transgressors. So not only are those of us who continue to sin, but Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession and praying for you right now. Praise God for that. Isn't that good, good news? So, so in the midst of this, you know, what do we do with this understanding? I mean, I don't have a great application point today other than this, that we love him more that we understand that we are forgiven, that the cost of our salvation was high, and that we love Jesus so much that we cannot help but tell others about him so that they will understand that it is only through Jesus. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll end with a story. I was, I was talking uh, this week uh, to a man uh, in town, uh, and he said to me, he goes, and he's, he's a sweet guy, an older man, um, and he said, so logically, if God is good um, and Christianity says there's only one way to heaven, is that good? Because so, I know God is loving, but what about all the other religions of the world? It's a guy, probably 80-ish, you know? He's been thinking about these things for a while, right? Um, and, and I really appreciate that question. I'm like, that's a great question. I really, really appreciate that question. I said, now, there's a sense in which, uh, that's a throwaway line, sorry. You know, um, but, but there's a, uh, an aspect of this that um, you're getting it right. God is love. God is a loving father. But he's also a righteous God. He's also a holy God. And so every, everything that has to uh, work itself out has to be punished. Every sin must be punished. So God is loving, but he's also um, a righteous God. I said, the other thing that you're struggling with is this, is that you have placed yourself above the scriptures here. I said, as a, as a Protestant, as an evangelical, and I'm having a very like, lovely conversation with this man. I said, I submit myself to the word of God. I say, the word of God is my authority. Now, will you allow your opinions and your thoughts to be subservient to the Word of God, or do you place yourself above the Word of God? Because if you place yourself above the Word of God, you have essentially become a God yourself in your own thinking. And I said, so we have to have an authority that says what is true and what is false. And I said, but we also must reconcile the idea of God as a loving Father, but God as a righteous judge. 
And the only religion that actually does that is Christianity. Because through the person of Jesus, the love of God is made manifest and revealed to us. And the justice of God is actually worked out at the cross. You see, all the other religions of the world give you advice (laughs) at how to be good. That's all they do. But Christianity actually says, trust and believe in Jesus. He was good in your place. As we think about Advent, um, I know I said I'm finishing up and I was thinking about this. Think about Advent. Think about the story of Jesus being, you know, born in a manger. You know, the truth of it leads us to understand who Jesus was. There's no moral to the story there, right? If you look at Islam, you look at Buddhism, all of their stories sort of have this, this moralistic, like do better and save yourself kind of aspect to it. You know, Islam is about submission. You know, um, you know Buddhism is about nirvana, those kind of things, right? Christianity is just about the truth of God, you know, telling us what is. There's no moral to the, to the Advent story, right? I mean, was it natural childbirth, maybe? Uh, you know, uh, hospitality, homelessness? I mean, is that, is, that the, is that the moral of the story? No, it's the truth of God being revealed to us so that we would believe and trust in one who is perfect and who would bear our iniquities upon himself. Our substitute. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we think about all these things, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would love you more, that we would understand that our sins are forgiven that the bentness that we were born with, Father, you have straightened out. Father, that we are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. And Father, he is high and lifted up, and he is exalted. And he is our elder brother. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is our savior. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would live our lives for him. So Father, help us. Help us to respond in faith. Help us to sing of all that you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.